Hello, welcome to From the Rookery End. My name is John. Uh, with me this evening is Jason. Hello. And a uh, special guest uh, today is uh, Ollie Wicken. Hello, Ollie. Hello there. So, Ollie, you are the man behind Hornet Heaven. I am. New episode came out this week. Uh, we'll get onto that a bit later on. But I think the first thing we need to talk about, uh, as we are Watford fans and we like to talk about our, our football club, we're going to talk about Swansea nil, Watford nil. It was a point, Jason. That's a fantastic thing, isn't it? A point away? A point away is good. I'm going to go back to this thing I talk about, about comparing results to last season. I'm still doing it. And a point at Swansea is a point better than we got last season. So uh, that seems all right to me. I was worried about the new manager effect that you get, no matter what level you're playing at. When a club changes manager, sometimes that can have a positive effect. And it did worry me. They, they, they did seem to do all right at Arsenal last week. They got a couple of goals. Uh, we know that our defence isn't the most, or a couple of weeks ago we'd have said our defence isn't the most sturdy. Yet we've now played two away games on the trot and we've got two clean sheets and four points. So all in all, looking good. Uh, Ollie, uh, we got a tweet from uh, Nipper Harrison. Uh, he said, great point, but the nature of the performance was disappointing. It, there, there is, it was, a, watching the game earlier, there was a massive disappointment. I'm with, I'm with Nipper on that one. I mean, before the game, I'd told myself I'd be happy with a point, but really that was only to try and manage my own expectations, to be honest. Because um, in the event, both teams were disappointing. Um, and because I know we can be a lot better than that, I'm now unhappy that we only got a point. Because it just really wouldn't have taken much to win that game, and we didn't even come close to that. So looking at the result in a wider context... Um, it's definitely an opportunity missed and I think that's important because I see us as at the level of a team that wants to keep its head above the relegation waters. Um, so we need to be taking those opportunities because they may not keep cropping up. Yeah, and it's it's weird because we you know, we start the season thinking, oh, this is going to be a uh, really tough start to the season. We've got all the big clubs to play. Um, life is going to be terrible, um, but it wasn't. Uh, and then we started playing some, some slightly lesser clubs um, and... The whole season for me sort of changed completely since Burnley. Uh, Jason, did you see us any massive? You know, Alan, another another uh, fellow on Twitter, uh, Alan Silver said, "Do you think we have uh, surrendered a bit of attacking verve in the uh, to keep it tied to at the back when we play away since Burnley?" I don't think so because we didn't really look an attacking force against Burnley anyway. We were we were really up against it and we tried to be defensive. Before that, you would have said we were attacking at least a bit more. But because of that defeat, and we weren't in that game, and it went all wrong, that we've stopped maybe being as attacking as we wanted to be. No, I still don't think so. I think it, it might be because of the teams we've been up against anyway. We, obviously, we started the season against some really strong teams. And I think we tried to have a go at them. And now we're playing these weaker teams. I I just wonder if we're expecting them to be set up more defensively and therefore we are sort of sitting back a bit and trying to draw them out if that makes sense and we're having to try and make them create the gaps but what is it why is it you know why ollie why can't we take it feels like we can't take a game by the scruff of the neck yeah, I mean, that usually means bossing the midfield, doesn't it? Or pushing your wing-backs forward, and we didn't do either of those things today. Uh, Pereira didn't really catch the eye, and Capu had one of his slightly clumsier days. Um, Amrabat came on after an hour, and it felt like we finally had a bit of a threat moving forward, but it didn't come to anything. I think is taking the scruff of the neck these days, maybe that just means you score first, and then you, then you try not to concede, because that was certainly how it seemed to work last week at Middlesbrough. 
Um, the problem was that this week Hollebass didn't step up from nowhere and spank a worldie into the top corner. Yeah, but, there, but it's, it's interesting, you, you pick up on Capu and you pick up on Pereira because Capu was sort of his form at the beginning of the season was the thing that gave us a you know, slightly bigger lift um, and Pereira, the great game that we had, let's say, against Manchester United, he really felt like he was, he was the, the, the important piece of the jigsaw that all of a sudden turned up. Well, they, they are the link, aren't they? They're the front of the midfield, so they link uh, with Dini and Agallo. And the thing that was noticeable today, I thought, was that we were back to playing longer balls into Dini and Agallo. Um, and they were doing the kind of one-touch movement between themselves that we saw last season, uh, which worked terrifically in the first half of the season and not so well in the second half of the season. And largely, it kind of didn't really come off today. Um, and I think that just has to be a function of the Capu and uh, Pereira axis not really being at the races. That's a bit worrying, though, isn't it? That, you no. know, we're, we're so dependent on two players. No, I don't think so. We've got a point. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I suppose, I want, I want, I suppose I'm after a little bit more, maybe. That's like the, the, you know, we, we are no, we're ninth. You know, we are not that far off Europe. And you'd want to sort of go, oh, you know, maybe this is... Maybe, maybe it's more to the performances where I'm a little bit more disappointed, Jason, because... You know, this felt like exactly like last week against Middlesbrough. And that wasn't a fun game to watch. And it wasn't particularly great to watch today either. Um, last week was only better because there was one goal. Yeah, and I think we, we're probably expecting with, with Pereira in the side, um, as Ollie mentioned, we, we've we now got someone who theoretically can do that attacking work. And is that is that link, like Ollie says, um, someone who can unlock defences who are blocking out, shall we say, Dini and Igalo and stopping them from playing, which last season would have meant we weren't going to score. If you look at today's game, it it could have gone either way and both sides will probably feel they were a little bit unlucky certain periods up front. We probably didn't have as good as chances as Swansea had. Most of their shots on target seemed to go straight to Gomez. Perhaps we were a bit lucky there. But then we were a bit unlucky at times. I thought Igalo got called for a handball that that shouldn't have been. Um, Pereira had one stuck under his feet that a, a quick pass to, to Dini and, and he was in and he had a scores. Um, we, I think we're still sort of almost on the fence. Certainly I am at the moment we, and we could fall one way. Um, and which way we're going to fall, I, I really don't know at the moment. We, I've not seen anything that suggests, oh my God, we're going to be in for a rough ride or are we going to be comfortable Look at the table at the moment. We're doing all right, but it's still, I think, for me, could still go either way. Ollie, which way is it going to go? Um, the thing, the only thing that's bothered me slightly is um, after the match that Mutsari was saying um, he was very happy with our performance in the first half, and he thought it was the best um, that he'd seen us play, and just made me think, wasn't he at West Ham? I mean, we've 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 played <laughs> quite well um, at times uh, in several games this season. And we didn't play quite well in the first half today. We didn't have a shot, uh, not on target. We didn't, um, and we didn't create any chances. We didn't look like scoring. What it, what he's probably saying is that we defended well and we had good shape and uh, we probably felt in control of it. Um, but to me, that's not our best performance of the season. That's not playing well. So it just makes me think whether his mindset has changed. And I do wonder whether it goes back to Burnley, whether there's a bit uh, a lack of confidence or a bit more caution in his mind, whether that's structured into the team or just the way he's seeing things. But he seemed happy with the first half, but I can tell you as a spectator, I wasn't. There wasn't a lot to watch. 
Is that is that Matsari being a, a typical Italian? I guess he he wanted a, a solid defensive performance, and that's what he got in that first half. Well, it's the first time I've heard him say that, and or say something that I haven't really agreed with. It's the first time that I've remember back with Viali, he'd always say how well the team were doing and how they were improving, and you're going, what? What? Um, and today was the first time he said something. And there was a moment last season, I can't remember when it was, when Kike said something and didn't quite tally with the way that everybody was seeing the games. Um, and for me, that's the first thing. I, it's not a big problem. It's not, you know, we got a point and it was fine. Um, it's just one of those disappointing matches of which I've seen hundreds over the years. <laughs> you know, you can't dwell on it too much. Neither team played particularly well. And I feel particularly sorry for the people that drove hours and hours and hours uh, down the motorway to watch it and probably had to try and talk about it on the way back. It's just one of those that you quite quickly find something else to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and it's the reason why I think it's last on match of the day. Um, uh, yeah, was, uh, the, on every possible criterion that you could choose to put a game last on match of the day, <laughs> uh, it ticked it off. I think it's, it's one of those games that we sort of need to, let like you say, a brilliant point away. Um, but, you know, looking ahead, though, let's say, to Hull, who have s- sort of seemed to have lost their... Uh, early form uh, that they had the minute they gave their manager a full-time contract it all went to pot um, and we got them next and it, it's the first home game we've had for, for all, what seems like for, for a long long time Jase what we what do you want from that game oh three points absolutely three points uh, talking about uh, not sure which way we're going to fall I think this is going to be a good indicator because Hull are going to be down there you're right they had a great start to the season I think they were uh running off team spirit for the first couple of weeks um but they sort of i think found their level without being too harsh obviously this is all going to come back and bite me on the arse and we're gonna we're gonna lose but uh i i i really do expect us to win next week and would be very very disappointed if we didn't they they are struggling they obviously they got thrashed by bournemouth last week they've lost at home to stoke who are probably just finding their feet themselves um so yeah we want nothing less than a than a win next week. What kind of win though, Ollie? A win's a win. Was it one nil? Is it uh, brilliant? We got we got a win. That's the important thing. Like like this week, it, it's great. We got a draw. Is it just great that we get a, a one nil win, or do we need a little bit more than that? We need Troy to get his one hundredth goal before it becomes a <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was it's like it was like that a couple of seasons ago, wasn't it? When he was near his twentieth goal and it wasn't going in and that kind of thing. So we want to get past that. So uh, a nice hat trick would uh, see him even closer to Cliff Holton's uh, total. How many? What does he need to get to get to Cliff Holton? And what would that make uh, him in the in the in the, in the list? Uh, well, five. He is currently fifth. He needs to oh. if he scores three more league goals, he equals Cliff Holton in league goals. Um, but it's a, a two or three more, I think, than that to catch uh, the big fella up uh, in League and Cup. Jason's feeling very inadequate at the moment, I think, because of the stats <laughs> that Ollie's. Like, but there's a really good, good stats. Because, because of Hornet Heaven. I think that's why maybe Ollie's uh, maybe a little. Well, bit exactly. I'm, I'm wondering how big Big Cliff is uh, feeling about it up in Hornet Heaven. You know, is he, does he want <laughs> Troy to, to get to a hundred, or is he feeling a bit nervous? I know that Tommy Barnett. Uh, who was uh, Watford's all-time appearance maker and goal scorer for years and years and years. Um, you know, when he was on earth, he was lovely to Luther about Luther catching up and overtaking him. But I think he might be a bit worried about Troy Deeney catching up with him as well. Because he can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the latest on at seven uh, in a minute. But it, it is a season of, of many games and, and Swansea Ray was just one of them. Um, and I think 
as well as last week's uh, away at Middlesbrough, um, we're not going to be remembering this game. Well, actually, there's one, maybe there's one moment, one thing I think we haven't mentioned so far is Gomez. Um, he did another one of his saves where it's almost like that's worth three points. It's one of those saves where it's, his, it's the goalkeeper's goal. Do you know what I mean? It's like the equivalent of striker scoring a goal. That's maybe the only moment that from this game that might make the highlight reel at the end of the season. One thing about Gomez, I thought he was—he uh, put in a flawless performance today. There, there was nothing outstanding apart from that one point blank effort. But what it made me remember was how I saw him as a goalkeeper when he was at Spurs. And I thought he was error prone, he was hapless, he was untrustworthy. And uh, we've had him for, what, two, three years now. And if fans of other clubs still think about him the way I thought about him at Spurs, then I'd definitely want to correct them, because he's been brilliant for us. Um, He's been absolutely nothing like what it said on the tin. A podcast made by Watford fans Fans. for Watford fans from the rookery end. With Ollie on the podcast, uh, we've got to talk about the brilliant, the warm, the lovely hornetness that is Hornet Heaven that uh, that he's written um, that is now available. The or a series two, episode three, uh, is now out. Um, it's uh, t- w- w- this episode is set in uh, the first one that we've done that's set in the nineties. We've had one in the eighties, mainly set in the the last couple of seasons. But this is the first one in the nineties. Why did you pick this season, Ollie? Yeah, it's a it's a period drama um, going from nineteen ninety one. Um, and what do we call this era? Ian Grant, in his uh, splendid, I'd say, definitive chapter about this period in um, Tales from the Vicarage, Volume 2, called it The Doldrums. Um, you might just call it Ouch. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible time. When you look back on an era, what, you, what tells you most about is how you feel uh, when you remember some of the names from that period, the players. Um, and in this case, most evocative names from that period are names that evoke just misery and despair. So Keith Dublin, who made 168 league appearances for us, all of them with his laces tied together. And there's, <laughs> a, there's Andy Kennedy, who was only interested in scoring off the pitch. Um, and around about that time, there was a goalkeeper called Simon Shepherd who couldn't actually jump. Which I would have thought, <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're issuing a job for a goalkeeper at a football club, you'd need someone who could jump, but he couldn't. Um, so it was a terrible, terrible time, and you know there's a fair amount of comedy in just how terrible we were. Um, so I chose that, and of course it, the 1991 season had the most brilliant end to uh, the season. Um, down at the bottom of the table, rather than at the top of the table. The, the Great Escape was the episode, and what was it? How many, I come with the exact figures, but I know you will, Ollie. Where were we when we we lost to Blackburn? Yeah, so on uh, Tuesday, March the 19th, 1991, we lost 3-0 at home to Blackburn, who were relegation rivals. Uh, we were seven points from safety with seven weeks of the season left, and, and it ended up that we'd need to win seven of the last 11 matches to stay up. And we did, which was an amazing thing, and it, and it, it, it happens in the... You, you can hear the what happened uh, in, the, in, the, in the episode of Hornet Heaven. Um, Jason, at that point, you see... I wasn't quite at my enlightened point as a football fan. Um, I was about 11, 10, 11 years old. And I was sort of a bit more appreciative of it, but I wasn't just jumping around and going, ooh, goal, which I suppose I was when I was about seven or eight. What, what do you remember about that? Because you're a bit older than me. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, what do you remember about that season, let's say, or that, that beginning of the 1990s? Again, I was uh, uh, still a still a child, um, slightly older one. I think I've been. I was I was doing my first year of A levels that season. 
and I, I mean, I was still still used to Watford being a successful club. I think I obviously bought up on on the Taylor years, and even though we'd then sort of suffered relegation, we'd had a had that run at the playoffs, and I I still thought Watford were a a good club, and that relegation to the back to the third tier wasn't a, a possibility. But I think it had been such a a dire season that sort of by the time that I suppose yeah that when the Blackburn came along I, w- I probably was well resigned to the fact that we actually weren't any good anymore and that we were going down this season and sort of would be heading back to to our roots of uh, of, of sort of associate membership football as I think they used to call it in those bottom two divisions um, so yeah so the, to then go on that run of uh, sort of winning all those games towards the end of the season was, ama- it was amazing obviously yeah culminating in that in that win um at Oxford the one nil win uh obviously Paul Wilkinson had that uh reputation of, of always being offside did he never heard that before <laughs> could cut a, a frustrating frustrating figure up front uh and again being a a younger lad it's always the the strikers the goal scorers that you look to as your hero so having been brought up on on Jenkins and Blissett and even sort of the the short reigns of the likes of Mark Falco, you sort of to then sort of be left with Paul Paul Wilkinson. Um, it was almost like a, a a poor man's Gary Penrice. I don't know. <laughs> That's being a bit harsh. He seemed to then all of a sudden yeah, hit a hit a run of form and and everything was rosy again. And and you thought, okay, great. That's it. We're, we've we've got that little blip out of the way. It'll be years of uh, success, and uh, we're going to get back to the first division very soon. Oh well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I suppose the fact that where we are now, Ollie, um, when you uh, listen to this episode, and it's almost quaint to think that old little old Watford uh, back then. Look at we are because you know, now we're, we're we're much bigger, we're much better. Um, but I still sort of, you know, I sort of said it in a an interview with Darren Basie last week. That was almost with with Graham those ten years with him. We were punching above what was. Watford's weight and this, the, you know, the 1990s at least the initial part was sort of where we were, have always traditionally naturally been but it, there, there was a sort of again looking back it, it's a nice thing to it, it feels like it feels like Watford that not just that season those that several years afterwards that feels like what Watford truly is well it depends when you started uh, following Watford really I guess I mean I started following Watford when they were coming up out of division 3 in 1968 and so I watched us go up into division 2 back down down into 4 and then climbing all the way up so if you ask me what our sort of um, you know where I feel most at home as a Watford fan I might actually go back to where I started at the very beginning which is sort of uh, tier two, tier three, borderline. And what's, what's interesting for me is when you say that in the 1990s, we, that wasn't our normal area. That was still well above uh, where uh, we'd come from. And we spent most of the 90s trying to sink like a stone back down there. So, um, <laughs> you know, 1991 was the great escape. But three years later, um, and this was under Glenn Roder, if you look at exactly the same date as that Blackburn game, 19th of March, um, we were also in the relegation zone. Um, we were only a point from safety, but we won six of the last ten to stay up that season. And then fast forward another two years, uh, Rhoda had just been sacked and Graham Taylor took over. And on the 19th of March 1996, Taylor was three games in, we were in the relegation zone. We were seven points from safety. 
Um, but that time we only won four out of the last 11 and got relegated. So we kept on trying to go down um, <laughs> and finally succeeded in getting back down to what our historic level had been. But luckily by that time we had Taylor back at the helm um, and he took us up to uh, where we belonged when he was our manager. But also uh, they didn't have the, uh, the greatest owner, which is hard to remember. Or maybe it's not. It's not been that long since we've had a poor owner or someone running it. Uh, Petchy, uh, there's a, a little bit about Bassini about him, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you do that thing where you look at the 19th of March, 1991, 1994, 1996, and you say, well, what's that tell us? So I think it just tells you that you need the right setup at a club. Um, so Taylor had left, and the place wasn't the same without him. Then he came back, he sorted us out and took us up to the Premier League. If you did the same exercise under the Pozzo family and asked yourself, where were we on the 19th of March in every single year under the Pozzo family, you'd, uh, you'd feel much happier. Yeah. The, the one thing, though, uh, looking back at you know, these, thinking back to these old times, let's say, from many moons ago, um, it definitely gives us opportunity uh, on From the Recreation to add some more objects to our... 100 objects. Here it is, a collection of historic and intriguing items that define Watford Football Club. Oh, it's Watford in 100 objects! Ollie, at the beginning of this Hornet Heaven episode, and I don't remember this at all, I looked to see if I'd gone to that game, that Blackburn game, and I did. But I don't remember, maybe it'd been such a bad game, Dad made me us leave early um, to get ahead of the traffic. But a bin was thrown onto the pitch, and it was on fire? That's correct. What? <laughs> so was it purely out of anger? What, what, why do you think this was done? I think the story here is that the, this item uh, of Watford's 100 objects represents fan power coming to the rescue of Watford Football Club. I think that's what it represents. Uh, so it's this game against Blackburn, 19th of March, 1991. Uh, terrible, terrible, terrible. And the fans weren't happy. There was fan unrest. And you have to remember that historically Watford fans have very, very rarely protested um, yeah, going back a few years, there were a chance of Bonser out or Keane out. But in the 1980s, under Graham Taylor, we'd become the family club, of course. Um, and the section behind the dugouts in 1991 was specifically a family area. It was reserved for children and their parents. It was a law-abiding place. Um, in fact, all it took to keep kids in check was lovely old Anne Swanson. Yeah, uh, she said it me a few John. times, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the yeah. match against Blackburn, there was a remarkable moment and someone threw a dustbin from the family stand onto the pitch. It was astonishing. It was a protest from the family stand and it made everyone realise how bad things had got. And it particularly upset Perriman. So he refers to the incident uh, in the end of season highlights uh, video that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, he mentioned it when he was interviewed by Lionel Burney for the book The 100 Greatest Watford Wins. Um, so it really got to him and it sparked a turnaround because immediately after the dustbin incident, Perriman kept the players in the dressing room for 45 minutes afterwards. The following week, they went to promotion chasing Middlesbrough and they won 2-1 in the last minute. And then they won six of the next nine games and avoided relegation with a game to spare on a brilliant away day at Oxford United's old ground with 3,000 Watford fans packed onto the terrace. And it was the greatest escape in Hornet history. The team was magnificent, and I include Keith Dublin in that. And our Division <laughs> 2 status was saved, all because of a dustbin thrown onto the pitch from the family stand. And that's the story. But there is one piece that... missing, John. Oh. What? Who threw it? Yeah, who did throw it? It never came up in that no one's named in, in, you know, in Lionel's book. Jason, you don't know who threw it? No, no idea. I want to find out who threw it. I think it's important because that 
person, I'm not saying man, it might have been someone different, it might have been a child, I don't know. <laughs> might have been Anne Swanson. You never know. <laughs> it might have been Anne Swanson. Imagine if it was Anne Swanson. Wouldn't put a past her. Um, lovely lady. Who threw it? So if you know who threw the bin, then we want to find this person and talk to them about why they threw the bin. Um, it might have been, you might be listening to this podcast now and you were, it was your friend's dad uh, and you scurried away afterwards because you thought he was embarrassing or you might have given him a help to throw it on because you too were angry with him. So we're, we're starting the hashtag, hashtag who threw the bin uh, and uh, we're going to try and track down the person who threw the bin uh, onto, the, onto, the, uh, onto the pitch from the family area uh, on Tuesday the 19th of March 1991. So I'm guessing anyone between the ages, let's say 40, let's say, you would have probably, you might have, if you're in, in those ages, check with your what for friends because you're probably of the era where, the age where you would have been in the family area way back then. So if you're aged between 30 and 40, if you can think back, do you remember the bin and do you know who threw the bin? Uh, the next object, Ollie, sort of comes out of, uh, it's one from you. Um, and uh, it's a pair of boxer shorts. Whose mm. are they? Right. Uh, well, this item comes under the category of uh, relic. And what I mean by relic is an ancient item that used to belong to a holy person. Uh, <laughs> it's something that years later is used to revere and worship that person. Um, so famous examples, obviously, of relics would be the Turin Shroud, the cloth laid over the body of Jesus Christ at his burial, or the Holy Grail, the cup from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper. <laughs> Me, I own Graham Taylor's boxer shorts. <laughs> well, he how is God. Get them? He is, absolutely. Hallelujah. But well, let, let me tell them? you what they're like, first of all. I want you, I want you to have a okay. visual image of these, first of all. So um, I think if you tap Harlem Globetrotters 1980s into Google Images, <laughs> you'll almost literally have the picture. They've got um, narrow vertical stripes of purple and white. So they're quite a skimpy cut, I warn you. Uh, they're 100% polyester and they're made by Ocean Pacific. So in truth, they're more like beach shorts rather than boxer shorts. So the kind of thing you saw in... <laughs> 1980s videos of roller skaters with mullet hairdos, overknee socks and garish shorts. In fact, they're the least Graham Taylor item of underwear that you could possibly imagine. So I genuinely yeah, but, hope but, you never wore them. But the underwear, though, the underwear, though, you know, that's where some people can be a little bit, you know, uh, more expressive without having to change their outgoing persona. You know, Graham well, was his manager. Maybe that was where he had a little bit of more fun... Uh, trying to oh. express himself. I'm going to stop you short there, John. That's blasphemy. I don't think you can talk about that at all. <laughs> a lot of people ask me whether I've ever worn them. Um, yeah, that, that's what I was just about to ask. That, that ah, question. Um, well, I think that's a bit like asking whether anyone has ever laid on a table and put the Turin shroud over their head. Of course I haven't. <laughs> I venerate really? these boxer shorts. Well, having said Wait. that, they're sacrosanct. Yeah. But having said that, I did take them to the 1999 playoff final in my pocket. Um, the plan was that they'd work as lucky underwear with a bit of extra supernatural power. Um, and when Alan Smart scored the winner, I ended up wearing the boxer shorts on my head. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a little sacrilegious, maybe, but I, I had to do it with one at Wembley. Um, and Jason, you asked how I got hold of them. It's a mundane story that's completely at odds with the profound religious significance of the underwear. <laughs> uh, my brother was collecting for a jumble sale in the mid-1980s. He was picking up from the Nascot Wood area. Uh, the Taylor family had left out a bin bag of jumble. 
My brother asked me if I wanted anything. I said, what's duty put in the bag? My brother said, boxer shorts. I gave my brother a fiver. And it was that simple. <laughs> oh. It was that simple to acquire God's pants. Yeah, but five pound back then would have been a little bit more than it would be now, of course. Uh, but, but well worth it. Great well value. Well worth it. Some, some people have questioned whether they are actually his. I have to confess that. Um, and a hmm. dozen years ago, I was going to meet him at an event. I was going to meet the great man himself. So I took the boxer shorts along to see if he could verify them for me. Um, so I sort of sidled up to him rather you know, sheepishly, as you would, I think, if you had his old <laughs> boxer shorts in your pocket. Um, and I showed them to him and, and asked them if they were his. Um, and he gave me a look that I can only describe as, as well, the look that would be on your own face if someone produced an old pair of boxer shorts that they'd kept for years because they thought they were <laughs> yours. Um, he, said he said he didn't recognise them but thought his wife might know. And uh, so shouted, Rita! Probably with a bit more alarm in his voice than you might have expected, uh, and rushed away, and he didn't come back. So uh, the the key thing that's a, is that's a good sign. That's a good sign. That means he was embarrassed and wanted to get away because maybe they were his. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, t- I took it that way as well. I think you're yeah. right. But with but religious think, but, relics, the truth isn't is the truth isn't what matters. It's the symbolism, isn't it? Um, yeah. So is is the Turin shroud genuine? Nah, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Because what, what this particular object tells us about is the venerable status of Graham Taylor. He's God. He's our Messiah. I, I think um, one of the first lessons that any football manager learns is that when a member of the press walks up to them and says, are these boxer shorts yours? They will always <laughs> run a mile. <laughs> but think about it, it must have been his. Because he didn't have, he, you know, he would, they were their adult size. They were. And he wouldn't have had a grown up son at that point. Uh, he didn't know. That was that was yeah. how uh, that was how we knew that uh, they must be his. They had to be his. Yeah, yeah absolutely, they had to be his. Certainly not Rita's. No. So there's two objects sticking in, in the the hundred object list. Uh, one is a burning bin, uh, and number two is a pair of Graham Taylor's underwear. We're the Orns. You're the Orns. Come on, you Orns. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening uh, to another podcast, mainly about a game that. We're going to forget about. Um, thank you very much, Ollie, for your time. You're very welcome. Uh, and Jason. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and remember, you can always get in touch uh, with us here on From the Weekend. Uh, get on your social media at Watford Podcast. Uh, and Ollie, uh, if they haven't already, which we're not quite sure why they haven't, if we want to listen to Hornet Heaven, what's the best way we can we can do that? Well, all of the listening links are at hornetheaven.com, um, or you can go to iTunes or Audio Boom and search Hornet Heaven. Uh, and you have to do that because um, they are wonderful things for what for fans. In fact, any fan of any football club uh, can relate to uh, the stories and the people um, that are that are in Hornet Heaven. Uh, and one day we shall all be there watching Watford all the time. Uh, thank you very much <laughs> again, uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back again next week uh, once Watford have definitely 100% beaten Hull City. I have my fingers crossed. Come on, you horns. You horns.